Good morning, ladies. I think we have everybody here or pretty close. I remember telling you last week that we had a lot to get through, and we did, and it's even worse this week. Couldn't even believe it when I got to the lecture and went, oh my goodness, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, but it's all good stuff, so that's, that's good. So if you have questions, now would be a really good time to ask them. Do you have any questions? Nobody? Oh, Connie, yes. God announced the, God, what did Paul mean when he said God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham? And I will go through that. In essence, when, it's, when God told Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you because through you will come the Messiah who will save uh, all nations. That, that, is, that is the gospel being announced in advance. And I don't know if I say it that clearly in here. So, Any other questions? Yes, Cindy. What is being rebuilt? If I tear down what I rebuild, or if I re rebuild what I've torn down, definitely we'll cover that. Definitely we'll cover that, yeah. Any other questions? Then let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for each woman here. Um, Father, thank you uh, for their presence. Father, I just pray that whatever... Um, whatever they had to go through to get here, whatever circumstances might have pulled them away, that we would just be able to put aside for this time um, those things that are eating away at us or those things we're concerned about to just focus in on you and your word and, and just rest in you and rest in your truth. Uh, and may we have open minds and hearts to hear what you have to say today, Father. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to remind you a little bit about the situation in Galatia, these teachers, these Judaizers had come into Galatia and begun to teach a different gospel. Where did I put my clicker thing? It's here. Okay. I'm better now. Um, and they'd begun to teach what Paul calls a different gospel, and that gospel was, or, or that message was, that salvation comes through faith in Christ plus keeping the Jewish ceremonial law, which included circumcision primarily was their big sticking point, but it also included uh, keeping kosher food laws, which will definitely come into play in what we're talking about today, uh, keeping the ritual washing laws, observing the holy days, so that's ceremonial law, not the moral law, and we'll talk about that too, that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is, is different, but, but definitely because, of course, the, the Gentile Christians were keeping that law. But this ceremonial law, in order to be a Christian, you had to essentially become a Jew. You had to keep that Jewish ceremonial law. Um, and they weren't saying, we want you to practice the ceremonial law out of reverence, out of tradition. No, they were saying, you can't be saved if you don't, which is a very different thing than saying, you know what, the way I meet with God is by you know, keeping kosher or whatever else. It was, it was a, a necessity for salvation. So Paul says then, that is no gospel at all. To call that the gospel is no gospel at all. And, and he goes even further and he says, anyone who preaches such a gospel is condemned, is worthy of death, is worthy of hell, even. Very strong words. Did you notice he continues with strong words? 
Oh, you haven't even gotten to the best part yet. I think it's this coming this next week, the best part. Uh, so very strong words. Now, Paul is defending two things in the, book of, uh, in the uh, letter to the Galatians. The first thing he is defending is his authority as an apostle. Because, you see, he realized that, that the Judaizers were trying to uh, demote his authority as an apostle. Because if, he could get, if they could get the Galatians to question Paul's authority, then they'd question his gospel. They'd question his preaching as well. And so he is defending his authority as an apostle. Uh, and then the second thing that, that he is defending is the gospel itself, the gospel he preaches, what he calls my gospel, which is truly the gospel of Christ. And that gospel is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, nothing more than that uh, but that. And, and so that defense begins in what we're reading today. He's going to continue his defense of his apostleship in chapter 2, and then he's going to turn at the end of chapter 2 and begin defending uh, his gospel as well. Now, up to this point, the ways that Paul has defended his gospel is first he has said that he received his calling and his gospel by direct revelation from God. And that might be point two on your thing. I'm sorry, I switched that around late last night. Uh, he received his calling and his gospel by direct revelation from God. He didn't receive it from any human being at any time. And he says, in fact, that he didn't consult with anyone. He didn't ask anyone uh, for help in figuring that out. In fact, he didn't even go to Jerusalem to the other apostles in Jerusalem for three years. Uh, and when he did go to Jerusalem, 14 years later, and he did meet with the Jerusalem apostles, they agreed with his gospel. They gave him the right hand of fellowship, which meant they, they even partnered with him in that gospel. He said, we're gonna, they said, we're going to partner with you in this gospel. You go to the Gentiles, and we'll go to the Jews. And, and so Paul was to go to the Gentiles, and Peter and the other apostles were to go to the Jews. Now, speaking of Peter, you're going to have a little issue with Peter. Paul's going to uh, continue the defense of his authority by relaying this story that happened in Antioch, in Pisidian Antioch, I suppose, although it could be the other Antioch. I don't know which Antioch. Uh, but it, in, in, uh, at Antioch, the two men had a confrontation. I do want to say that there's no record, biblical record, that Peter argued back. I think it was one of those. You know when you, you, you catch your children and they know they're wrong? Sometimes they do become defiant, but you've had this happen too. I have a feeling that's what Peter did. I think, I think he knew, you know, I know he knew he was wrong. So Paul's primary point in relaying this story we're about to read is that it is, it is a defense of his authority as an apostle. Because only an apostle could confront another apostle in such a way and win. And we know he won because in Acts 15, it talks about the Jerusalem council that settled once for all this very issue. And Peter was part of that. So uh, that, that is, a, is sort of this underlying defense of his authority. But he has a secondary point as well. And Paul's secondary point is that these men that came from James, now I'm going to talk about that first. It says, before men came from James, the, that Peter was eating with Gentile Christians. The men that came from James are referring to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And in Acts 15, we learn that these men said they came from James, but they didn't come from James, like the guy that was just going to give me a free carpet cleaning, but actually was trying to sell me a vacuum, okay? That, and it took hours. Oh my gosh, it's never happened again. I was young, I was 25, I didn't know what I was doing. 
<laughs> it, was, it was awful. It still sticks in my mind. Uh, so so these, before these men came from James, they, they weren't actually from James, and James says that in Acts 15. Um, but the men came, uh, Paul's point is that these men that came from James were wrong. That what they were saying was wrong. They were adding works to the free grace gospel of God. And, and they were wrong. Paul knew they were wrong. Peter knew they were wrong. Barnabas knew they were wrong. The Galatians should know they were wrong. It didn't keep Peter and Barnabas from being carried away by it. But they knew that the men from James were wrong. So let's uh, read this story about uh, Peter and Paul in Antioch. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, which were the men from James. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You know, sometimes, I was just talking with Jack Archer about this this morning, sometimes we can read this and not really picture it. So I want you to picture, for those of you who go to Brookside, picture Jeff and Steve. And the others of you picture like, like your senior pastor and your, the head of your elder board or something like that. And this is like on a Sunday morning that Jeff's in the middle of preaching and Steve walks up the steps and confronts him in the middle of the church. Can you? Can you feel, how uncomfortable would that be? As my kids would say, awkward. I mean, everybody would just be, you know, find the closest, and that's what Paul did in front of everybody. He walked up and he said, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. Why all of a sudden are you living like a Jew? Why have you caved on what you know to be the truth? And Paul, you know, it was awkward, but Paul's saying this had to be done. If there would have been a, a better way to do it, I would have done it that way. But this had to be done because, because he knew that the gospel was at stake in this and he knew that the unity of the church was at stake in this. Now, what's the big deal? I mean, what? So he decided not to eat with the Gentiles anymore. He liked this group better, you know, just like a, every high school cafeteria <laughs> that we've ever been to. Uh, well, first you, uh, you need to understand something about Jewish dietary laws. I'll tell you that we, when my mother took my sisters and me on a cruise, uh, it was, uh, God bless her, the last cruise she took us on, which was six weeks before she died, and we had a fabulous time. And uh, there was a big Jewish group uh, convention thing that was with us. Their food had to be prepared in a completely different food, uh, uh, kitchen than ours was because it couldn't be tainted, it couldn't be... Uh, made unclean by our food. They had to eat in a completely different place. Okay, so Jewish dietary laws aren't just don't eat bacon. Okay, it's not just that. Or if you're going to eat bacon, eat turkey bacon. I had turkey bacon the other day. I'm telling you right now, if somebody said to me, you can never have real bacon again in your life, I might eat it. Fortunately, nobody has ever said that <laughs> to me. Uh, it's more than that. It's, you can, it's that if you eat with someone who is not a Jew, they are unclean, their food is unclean, their food preparation is unclean, and so you will be unclean. You can't do that. And so that's, that's part of what it means to keep kosher. So these men from James, they're Judaizers or, or something similar to that, were saying that in order to have table fellowship as Christians, 
as Jewish Christians with Gentile Christians, then the Gentile Christians must keep kosher. They must eat kosher food, prepared in a kosher way, and live by all the ceremonial laws of Judaism, or else we can't eat with you. Um, and this is racism, obviously. Obviously, this is racism, but it's more than racism, which is why Paul's so upset here. And, and the reason is that um, God, it, that, that they were requiring of Gentile Christians for, for fellowship more than God required for them. In other words, God accepted the Gentile Christians without the Jewish ceremonial law. How can the Jewish Christians require more of them than God did in order to have fellowship with them? And so therefore, the unity of the entire church was at stake. Had this become, had, had Paul lost and the men from James won, we'd have two completely separate wings of the church. The entire unity of the church was involved. And Peter knew it was wrong. Uh, for some reason, he, he caved to the pressure. Was it the peer pressure? pressure? Was, it, was he worried that when he got back to Jerusalem, he'd be persecuted? We don't know. What we do know is that Paul calls it hypocrisy. And the word, the Greek word for hypocrisy means it's, it, it's used for an actor playing a part. Peter was play acting. He knew this wasn't right. He knew this wasn't who he really was. He was playing up the part of a Judaizer. And Paul called him on it. And in fact, Paul says that Peter withdrew. He drew back. That word is hyperstellen. That is a military term for a retreat, for a turn-your-tail-and-run retreat. And so Paul is saying, when push came to shove, and it's possible quite literally when push came to shove, Peter didn't stand his ground. He withdrew. He retreated instead. So we read this in the 21st century, and we go, okay, yeah, he was wrong. Yeah, Paul needed to confront him. But like, in front of everybody? Did he really? Why a public rebuke? Why not just, just go, hey, Peter, tss, come here. That's not right. Don't be doing that. No, he did it in front of everyone. And, and here's why. And there, there are a number of reasons why. Now, I, I will tell you that, that many and probably most issues within the church and between believers should be, should be settled privately. And there were times when Peter or when Paul did that as well. Um, but there are a number of reasons why, and I, I thought of at least four, why Paul believed uh, and I would agree that this needed to be dealt with publicly. The first is, what I already told you, is the purity of the gospel was at stake. Because implicit in this entire situation is that one needs to do something more than have faith in order to be saved. If you accept with the men from James, okay, yeah, we have to become Jewish, then you're accepting that it's faith plus something else, plus the Jewish ceremonial law. So the purity of the gospel is at stake, and so it undermines the graciousness of the gospel. And as we talked about last week, that's a big deal. That's not just something like, yeah, well, whatever. No, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and then secondly, as I, as I said a minute ago, the unity of the church of Christ, the universal church of Christ, was at stake. It they, there would have been a permanent split between those that kept the ceremonial law and those that did not. And then thirdly, 
the problem was a very public issue. It was a very public problem. Peter wasn't going into hiding and only eating with Jewish Christians. It was a, everybody knew what was going on. Everybody was aware, and it was a very public issue. So if Paul had chosen to handle it privately, there would be people within the church who would have never known that it had been handled. They would go on considering, well, you know what? Peter isn't eating with Gentiles. Peter, Peter, one of the big three, isn't eating with Gentiles. I don't know that we should either. So in order to make sure everybody was aware, look, this is wrong, and to have Peter say, you're right, I was wrong, um, it needed to be dealt with publicly. And finally, other people were being led astray. In fact, Paul says, even Barnabas, Barnabas, of Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy, that guy, and that's not a law firm. That's Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. That's how we used to remember our license plate, PBT. Uh, so, you know, that, that he, was a, he was one of Paul's primary associates. He, 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 even he was led astray, and that's what Paul is saying. Even Barnabas, can you believe that? Even Barnabas was led astray. So other people were, had an impact, this had an impact on other people than just Peter, which underscores for us the importance of our own witness. Other people are watching, and they, uh, they are, are affected by our behavior, both good and bad, especially, and I don't have time to teach on this, so I'll just convict you with it, our children are watching. And I can't tell you how many times my kids do something and I realize, oh yeah, I taught them that. Now when they read, I can say, yeah, I taught them that. There are other things that I realize, yeah, oh, that self-righteous judgmentalism, yeah, that's me. I taught them that. Other people are watching, some of them very young eyes. So then in verses 15 to 16, Paul begins a transition. Please don't do this now because nobody's back there. And that's why it's doing it. Okay. And nobody knows how to do that. Okay, I'm just going to take Susan's advice right away and um, read it from the Bible. But I would love it if somebody would go find Mandy to help me so that I don't have to keep doing this. Just go up to Mandy and say, help! Okay, so uh, Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. Say this, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, in quotation marks, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we too have put our faith in Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So Paul knew that this, what I call smackdown in Antioch, was a threat to the gospel, and so these verses are a transition from his defense of his own apostleship to his defense of the gospel itself, the true gospel of Christ. And he begins by stating that by the law, no one can be justified. Not, you know, some people can, some people aren't. No, no one. There is no one that is justified by keeping the law. Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. It's back from that. There we go. No, it's back from that. Go back. Go back. <laughs> go back. Yeah, no, go back. Go back one more. We're there. Okay, thank you very much. So no one, I appreciate it, and hopefully it'll move on from here. 
by, the, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, we need to pause here and talk about justification because that's a churchy theology word. Uh, and, and if you don't understand justification, then none of this makes any sense. It was like when Lane was doing the science the other day and it asked, what is the importance of a control group? And his answer was, I don't know. And so I said, read it to me. And it had the words experimental variable in it. And I said, what's an experimental variable? I don't know. Well, then, bud, you're not going to know what the importance of a control group is. So if, if you don't understand that word justification, which is right over here, you won't understand what it means. And it's a legal term. And it is the opposite of condemnation. If a person is found guilty before a court of law, they are condemned. Um, they, they, they have been found guilty. But if a person is acquitted, then they are justified. They are made right before the bench. So justification means to be declared innocent. And we all know from the O.J. Simpson trial that you can be declared innocent without actually being innocent. Declared innocent, it means uh, to be cleared of all charges. It means to be acquitted. Biblically, it means to be declared, to be declared righteous before God. In other words, to be made right with God. To be saved, essentially, is the same thing. So it's a legal term meaning to be made right before a righteous God, a righteous and holy God. This is how Terry John, no, this is John Stott said this. In the Bible, it, justification, refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. That's what, righteous, that's what justification is. And so Paul says that no one will be justified by the works of the law. No one will be make, made right with God. No one will be acquitted before the bench of the God of the universe by works of the law. Now that works of the law doesn't just mean the ceremonial law that we've been talking about, although it means that, but not just that. It doesn't even just mean the law of Moses, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, although that is included in it as well. It means more than that as well. The works of the law are any work or works that we do in order to justify ourselves before God. Anything. It doesn't matter which religion or which set of laws. If we believe we can self-justify by what we do, we can't be justified that way. To attempt to acquit ourselves before a holy God, a holy and righteous just God, can't be done. And Paul says that anything that we try to do to earn salvation won't get you there. You literally can't get there from here. So there's a problem with the law, but hear me. The problem with the law is not the law. The moral law is from, emanates from the heart of God. Think about this. There's a reason why every, not just every woman in this room, but every woman around the world, that's, that there's some things that everyone would say, unless you're just like really wacko out of it, that some people would say, that's wrong. Do you know of anyone who's going, I'm okay with what Jerry Sandusky did. Do you know anyone? No, nobody says that. Do you know anyone who goes, 
except for really, I'm telling you, okay, the really wacko people, there's some wacko people who say that it's, what Hitler did was okay. No. Everybody goes, that's wrong. You know why? Because that morality emanates from the heart of God. That's who God is. And so the problem with the law, the problem with the Ten Commandments that came directly from God is not the law. The problem with the law is us. The problem is we can't keep it. We are incapable of keeping the law in its entirety. And, and so if we could do that, if we could keep God's law completely, we could be justified by it. But we can't. And that is a problem. Um, the, the good news is that God has not left us in this state. He himself, in the form of his son, has done everything necessary for us to be justified. He did it for us. He has made us right with himself through the death and resurrection of Christ. We need only believe. And this is what makes Christianity, Christianity different from every other religion. Like the Judaizers, Every other religion seeks self-justification to establish one's own righteousness, literally self-righteousness, by a, thing, a list of things that we do or don't do, rather than having a righteousness that comes from God, which we'll talk about when we get to Philippians 3. So if you do this and you do this and you don't do that and you don't do that, you will be made right with God. And Paul's saying, no, you won't be. You can't do that. And Christianity is the only religion that looks at us as we really are and says, you're sunk, baby, because you can't do it. And because you can't do it, I will do it for you. When I talk to kids about this, I always use the example of when my kids were little and, and they had shoes that needed to be tied. I did not look at my, my eight-month-old kid and go, tie your shoes! No, he couldn't. And so I would kneel down and do it for him. That's what God has done. He has done everything necessary for our salvation. We can't do it ourselves. Have you ever noticed the comparisons that people make when they try to justify themselves? Well, I've never killed anyone. We always compare ourselves to like mass murderers. If that were the standard, that would be okay. But when you took a test, did the teacher accept, well, I didn't do as bad as Johnny. He got a 48%. Was, that the was Johnny the standard? No, the standard was 100%. And when you compare yourself against God's whole perfect holiness, we got a problem. Because that is a standard that we cannot reach. Here's the deal about justification by works. Justification by works fundamentally does not understand who God is. Does not understand a holy God. It has a low estimation of the God of the universe and an artificially high estimation of our own virtue. Because if we believe that by our own works, we can be made right with a completely holy, just, perfect God, to change Shaq O'Neal's words, you don't know God. You don't know God for who he is. And if we believe we can do that, we don't really even know ourselves. Because everywhere in the Bible, when, when somebody has come into contact with a holy God, you know what their reaction is? Boom, face first, 
I'm a worm, I'm in trouble. Go to Isaiah 6, and, and Isaiah sees this vision of heaven, and he says, woe is me. Those are his first words. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. If you go to, John, to Revelation, John, when he sees his vision of Jesus, he says, I fell on my face as though I were a dead man. And those were just visions. I, I think people get the idea that they're going to, like, argue with God when they get to heaven? It's like, you know, really? So, like, yeah, okay, that was a bad, bad thing right there when I lied, but look at this. I gave money to the Girl Scouts. No, we're not, we're not going to be arguing before God. We're going to be on our face. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. To him be glory and honor and praise. He is holy. And to say, I can justify myself by my works is to have a complete misunderstanding of how holy he is. And it's also to have an artificially high estimation of me. Because the whole counsel of scripture is there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's my favorite one to really tell us what we are like. The heart of man is desperately evil and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Wow. But that's who we are apart from Christ. It is our pride that prevents us from seeing how holy God is and how unrighteous we are, and not falling before God and asking for mercy. So, if all we need to have is faith, what is faith, then? Well, faith is not, and I love to do this, I love to start with what it is not. Faith is not just mental assent. I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus. Uh, it's more than that. It's also not faith in faith. All you got to have is faith. No, that's not right. Or faith in God in general. I believe in God. Uh, it's not that either. It is a personal faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 16, where he says we have put our faith in Christ Jesus, it literally says we have believed into Christ Jesus. It is a personal commitment, a placing of trust, a seeking of, refu of, of refuge and mercy in him alone. Uh, when I've spoken to high schoolers before, I often use a chair analogy, which you've probably heard before. This is a stool. I don't like stools because they're up high and I have to get my butt up instead of down. But, but this is a stool, and, if, and I can say I believe that this stool will hold me if I sit on it. But that's not really faith, is it? Because it's real easy to say, I believe, and, and go on. It is not until I actually sit on it and put my weight on it, which you're noticing I'm not actually doing, um, that, that I really do have trust that I really have believed into the chair. And Paul says we believe into Jesus Christ. We place our trust into Jesus Christ. That is what is saving faith. Because it really matters what we put our faith in. Sometimes people put faith in stuff that it doesn't belong there. My brother-in-law used to have an old rabbit VW. VW rabbit. Have you, you remember those things? They're about this big. And it was old. It was old even in 1978. And he believed, he had faith that that Volkswagen Rabbit would get him from Washington, D.C. to, to uh, Provo, Utah. He chose poorly. <laughs> he should not have put his faith in the VW Rabbit. It matters what we put our faith into, but faith is not what has the power. Faith does not save us. Jesus Christ saves us, and he is the only one that has the power to make us right with God. Amen? So we are to believe into Jesus. This is how uh, Terry Johnson puts it. He says, justification must be received by faith, empty-handed faith. 
Faith in itself is not an end. We do not seek faith. We seek Christ. It is not true that all one needs is faith. All one needs is Christ. Don't be fooled by thinking that because you have faith that you are saved. Faith must be placed into the proper one for it to be effective. Or elsewhere, Terry Johnson uh, says that saving faith is the whole person trusting in the whole Christ. Uh, that is what faith is. So now Paul's going to go on and talk about being crucified with Christ. But before we get there, I want to go back and look at verse 16 again. And, and at the very end, he says, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. In that verse, uh, Paul is quoting, and it's not going to look like he's quoting, but you're just going to have to trust me on this. He's quoting Psalm 143, uh, a psalm of David. And I'm going to tell you why it doesn't look like he's quoting it so you know. Paul was using the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, which is what most people used in, in that time. We use, our translation is from the Hebrew to English. His translation was from the Hebrew to Greek, which has now been translated to English. So it's going to look a little different, but this is what he was quoting. Oh Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. That is what Paul was quoting. No one righteous, uh, no one living is righteous before you. I want you to notice, this is, a, this is David's cry for mercy, I, but I want you to notice here his appeal. His appeal is not based on his own righteousness. Oh, Lord, have mercy, because I'm king of Israel, and I'm a good guy, and I believe in you. I'm a man after your own heart. You even said so. No, that is not the basis of his appeal. He knows he has no righteousness before God. His appeal for God's mercy is based on God's righteousness, on God's perfect goodness. So David asks to be saved by the righteousness that comes from God. Paul, when he quotes this, is connecting David to Jesus. And his original hearers would have understood that. Because he's saying ultimately the answer to David's problem and the answer to our problem is Jesus. Jesus is the one who can justify both him and us before God. Because God credits us with righteousness. That word actually, the churchy religious word, theology word is imputes it to us. God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. Now, this act of God imputing to us righteousness makes it so obvious that we are sinners because if we need righteousness imputed to us, obviously we can't do it on our own and obviously then we're sinners. So Paul anticipates one of the arguments against that uh, because then if we're definitely sinners and God and Christ saves us freely anyway, isn't Christ promoting sin? And Paul says, absolutely not. In other words, if I'm saved by grace, no matter what, why not keep sinning? Uh, and, and Paul's going to show us, and actually beyond what we're reading today, that that is not the case. Paul says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So Paul is saying, you know what? It isn't saving grace. It isn't uh, the gospel of grace that promotes sin. 
It's actually the gospel of works that promotes sin. Now, let me explain what that means. Um, the the uh, gospel of works or works-based salvation promotes sin. In other words, if someone, after realizing that he can't be saved by his own works and turns to Christ and then tries to turn back to a works-based uh, salvation, that proves that he's a sinner. And that's what Peter was trying to do, and that's what the Galatians were trying to do. They were trying, after, after tearing down a works-based uh, faith and saying, I am saved only by grace, they were then trying to go, oh, maybe I am, maybe I am, maybe I need to keep the law instead. That's how, what proves that we are sinners is when we do that, because we cannot keep the law. And so, therefore, we are condemned by that law. We are condemned as sinners. Um, this is how Philip Ryken puts it. He says, to rebuild the law is actually to transgress it because we cannot keep the law in all its perfection. So what really is the, the, the thing that proves us sinners is when we break the law that we're trying to rebuild. Uh, so the, that God in his grace does not promote sin, certainly, and he's certainly not responsible for it. That would be blasphemy. But then he says, I'm dead to the law, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. What does it mean to die to the law? It means to no longer be under its authority. It means to be freed from it and to renounce it. It means to place complete trust in Christ and no confidence in our works of the law. If I'm dead to something, it holds no sway over me anymore. It has no impact on me. It has no effect on me anymore. So I, I have died to the law. It no longer, I no longer put my confidence in it. It no longer has authority over me. Okay, great. But then he says, for through the law, I died to the law. How can we die to the law through the law? I find this fascinating, but you're going to think it's nerdy. But, uh, but I, it is, it's fascinating. If, if we look at what scripture teaches us is the penalty of the law, the law condemns us. Um, uh, Roman, or Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's what the payment, that's what the penalty is for sin. It is death. That's because, the, that, that's the curse of the law. It condemns us to death because we cannot keep it. But once a person has been put to death, the law no longer has any application to that person's life. If a person's been executed, what more can the law do? It can do nothing more. That's the, the ultimate uh, um, penalty that it can exact on a person. The law has no further claim on a person once he is put to death. Paul's saying the law has already been put to death in my life. Through Christ, because of what Christ has done, I've died to the law. Its penalty has been exacted. And so through the law, I died. Christ paid, Christ paid that penalty that the law exacted through the law. Therefore, I've died to the law as well. Those who belong to Christ, for those who belong to Christ, the penalty of the law has already been carried out through Christ's death on the cross. Paul's saying when Christ died on the cross, I died it on, on it too, and he's about to say that even more ex explicitly. Therefore, the law has no further claim on me. Um, he was dead to it, and so are we, if we are followers of Christ. Philip Ryken says, having written his own obituary, 
Paul proceeds to explain the circumstances of his demise. And he's going to go ahead and say, and I love this because everybody has heard this, but I love watching the flow of Paul's logic as he gets to this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So he says, I have been crucified with Christ. There are at least four things that were nailed to the cross of Christ. The first thing that was nailed to the cross of Christ was Jesus. The second thing that was nailed to the cross of Christ was the placard above his head that that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, which was uh, essentially above the person who was condemned was their sin, was what they had done to break the law that was causing them to be crucified. So Jesus, the placard public announcement above his head, and then Colossians 2 tells us that, that God nailed the debt of our sins to the cross. So Jesus was nailed to the cross, the public announcement was nailed to the cross, the debt of our sins was nailed to the cross, and Paul says, and we were too. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. And and the reason he says this is because of a concept that is throughout the New Testament, that we as believers are in Christ. In fact, if you read Ephesians Uh, A really fun thing to do sometime when you're really bored and you can't fall asleep is to to count how many times Paul says in Christ in the book of Ephesians. We are in Christ, which means we are united to Christ, which means that his story, everything he has ever done, becomes our story. It's part of what we are too. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Therefore, we have made right with God. See, God considers us righteous, not because we are righteous, but because we are in Christ, who has made us righteous. That's why we're dead to the law. Um, Because the law exacted its penalty against us on the cross of Christ, we're dead to the law. And it no longer has power over us, and we no longer uh, place our trust in that. And so now, the life I now live... I live to the Father. I am in Christ, and he is also in me. And so I live by faith. The life I now live is an act of faith. And then he becomes very personal about this life he lives. And this is beautiful, that he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is true that Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave. That is true. It is also true that God so loved me. God so loved Amy Keezer. God so loved Susan Port. God so loved Diane Jelkin. God so loved Angie Bellis. God so loved Linda Stewart that he loved and gave his life for me. That's a beautiful personal statement. So Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God. I don't take the grace of God lightly. No, if we really understand what Christ suffered for us, if we really understand the lengths to which a holy God pursued us to have a relationship with us, we will live the rest of our lives honoring and glorifying him as best we can because we are so grateful for what he has already done for us. Does Christ promote sin? Absolutely not. He gives us both the power and, and the desire to live for him. And then Paul says, you know what? If if 
salvation, if justification could come in any other way, Christ died in vain. You see, if I can save myself, why did Christ die? If I can do any part of my salvation, why did Christ die? If just living a good life and going through some religious motions is enough, there's no need for the cross. Jesus said, there's nobody else who died for our sins. Buddha didn't have to die a, a horrible death like that for our sins. Jesus, Jesus' death is in vain if there's any other way. And that's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me if there's any other way. And guess what? There is no other way. There was no other way. There is only one. There is only Christ. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else, tr or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in, its sli in slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. That is what Paul is saying. Well, we've got to hurry up here. In uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul, <laughs> Paul gets a little, little upset with him. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Very interesting here. The, the word, and I told you this, for bewitched is to cast an evil eye on someone. Who has cast an evil eye on you? There's a play on words here that we don't get in English. Who has cast an evil eye on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was placarded. It was obvious. You couldn't miss it like a billboard on the interstate. You couldn't miss it. He was portrayed. Don't let an evil eye be cast on you. Instead, cast your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. I would like to learn just one thing from you, which is one thing is actually a series of rhetorical questions, all with the same idea. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So Paul is saying, uh, through this series of rhetorical questions, he's saying, here's his point, they came to Christ by the Spirit, not, to, not the law. God worked among them by the Spirit, not the law. Their lives were changed by the Spirit, not the law. Why on earth would they go back to the law? You can see why he's exasperated with them. How foolish would that be? And I have a wonderful story that I don't have time to tell. So if you know Jack Archer, ask him about the time he was eating cookies with some girls in Zambia, and they wanted to know about his Christian faith. And he said, words to the effect, and I'm totally screwing up the story, but ask him, he'll do a beautiful job of telling it to you, won't he, Chelsea? He'll do a beautiful job. He said, for me to turn back on Christ would be like just choosing to eat mud rather than these cookies. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Why would you go back to the mud? Jesus has offered you these cookies instead. Uh, and then, I was going to sing for you. Consider Abraham, he believed God. Remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. You can sing with me. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Okay, now, Philip Ryken says that after that it becomes something like a sanctified hokey pokey uh, and becomes silly. But the idea is profound here. And that's the, what, who are the sons and daughters of Abraham is what Paul is answering here. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. 
The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and it announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now I will say that, that the, the Judaizers wanted to sing that song a little bit differently. Father Abraham, it makes sense, makes sense, have Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just practice this little thing we call circumcision. And that was a very different <laughs> sort of song. I got that from Philip Reichen, too. This is really important. We're going we're gonna to do this, and then we're going to end, because we're, we're just about out of time. And I will finish the rest of this lecture next week. I was pretty sure I wouldn't get through it. But we have to look at the promises God made to Abraham. Here's the first promise. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and golden land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is what Paul is talking about. In Genesis 12, God announced the gospel beforehand saying, I, through you, will come a Messiah that the whole world will be blessed by. That was horrible English. And if, if um, so, so that's us. We're part of the peoples that have been blessed through that. This is the gospel announced beforehand. Then in chapter 15, Jesus goes through, and I'm just going to read the, the uh, last part of this. He says, um, that it, God tells him, everything I'm going to do, and you're going to have a kid, and Abram says, I'm old, I can't have a kid, my wife's old too, and then, it, then Abram believed him. It says, Abram, Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, if you go on in this chapter of chapter uh, 15, if you go on, uh, God enacts the covenant between uh, Abram and God, and uh, actually, God did everything. Not only was, uh, did Abram do nothing, he was unconscious when it happened, so he really could do nothing. It was all God's doing. But here's Paul's big point. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Was Abraham actually righteous? No, he was not. He was declared righteous by God. He was justified, made right with God by God. Abraham was justified by faith just as we are. Except he was looking forward to the Messiah and we are looking back. But the, the justification, the mode of justification has never changed. Paul is going to make clear in Galatians that justification has always come by faith. In fact, look at the timing of this. Do you know when circumcision came into being? Genesis 17. So before there even was circumcision, and certainly before there ever was a law of Moses 400 years later, justification came by faith in God. It has always been thus, and therefore we as believers in Christ are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. So circumcision was not the basis for Abraham's acceptance by God. Faith was. Circumcision was only an outward expression of that faith. So we'll finish um, verses 10 through 14 before we get into next week's, but um, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much that there's nothing we need to do. There's indeed nothing we can do to save ourselves. Um, what a pitiful and useless thing that would be. Thank you so much that Jesus didn't die in vain, but he died for us. He loved us. He loved me, and he died for me. We thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll really try to do a better job next week when we're getting out on time. I'm sorry. <laughs>